Business Power Hour. Welcome to the Business Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Oh, yes, indeed. And uh, I'm Alec Hogg. In studio with me here in Johannesburg is my colleague, Stuart Lohman. Stu, lots of uh, interesting stories to talk about today, this Thursday. Yeah, very much so, Alec. Um, there's lots around the vaccine. Um, if you heard the government's made it from tomorrow, uh, anyone over the age of 18 can go in and have a walk-in and get a vaccine. Uh, we At the same time, we had a, a story from Daily Friend on the vaccine passports potentially becoming mandatory. Lots happening on the dot-com site on the vaccine. And lots of controversy there as well. Also, uh, in the program coming up today, we're going to be finding out more about how businesses reacted to the month of shame. I had a fascinating interview today with Gerard Parpenfuss. Uh, we have the highlights thereof for you in a little while. If you want to hear the full interview, uh, you can go onto the biznews.com website or Business Radio, which you can find on Spotify and iTunes. Also, tonight being Tuesday, we've got Pete Filion coming up later. Uh, Justin uh, uh, Rowe Roberts is in our Cape Town, in our virtual studio. He's in Cape Town. Uh, Justin, we're going to be playing the interview that you had with John Ludlu. Who who is John? John is the chief executive officer of the Small Business Institute. Alec, I think it was really eye uh, eye opening interview with him. We're so obsessed about the capital markets with the amount of information about all the big companies, but the real driver of the economy is the SMEs. So it was great to get that insight from John. And although things look uh, hunky-dory on the JSC from an SME front, it's not going so well at the moment. Yeah, that's a similar story from Harrod Parpenfuss as well, who's with the uh, NIASA, which is the National Employers Association of South Africa. So we've got a lot of business or hard business where the techie hits the tar today, Stu. Definitely, Alec. It's similar on the dot-com side. The two big performers are Magnus's piece from last night, where he looks at the pension fund amendments and the concerns around immigration. He talks about the three-year sort of wait now people might have to have when you leave the country. That's doing very well on dot-com. And then Nadia interviewed the FNB CEO last night on the brain drain, and that obviously gets pulled onto dot-com into a quotes piece, and that's running very nicely on how to counter a brain drain in South Africa. Were you impressed by Jacques Celia, Nadia? I was. I found him very approachable. I mean, he's a he's a big guy. He knows his stuff, but I was able to converse with him very easily, which was great. Yeah, I heard that in the interview. He is really a good communicator and unusual, as we were saying last night, for an engineer to be holding such a, a key position in banking. We've also, Stuart, got a, another story tonight uh, on rugby, an unusual one, which is going to be closing out the show. Yes, Alec, it was done from a, by a colleague in England, Lund, uh, Linda van Tilburg. Uh, she's looking at two South Africans uh, implementing ball tracking technology in the world of rugby. Um, I think those who watched the Lions to a might have preferred it to be in a bit earlier because there was a few disputed calls <laughs> in the game. But this will hopefully take away that sort of the 50-50 element in the game. So. Yeah, we see how technology has changed yeah. uh, sport around the world and continues to do so. Okay, so you mentioned in passing what the business community was accessing on the uh, business.com website. Maybe uh, just clarify that for us, top stories, top uh, three. Top three, Magnus Haystack on pension funds and potential amendments to that act. Um, FNB CEO Jacques Sellers on the brain drain and how to potentially counter that. And then a few stories around the vaccine passports and the new sort of laws around 18-year-olds being able to get vaccines from tomorrow. Okay, that means you can finally go and have your vaccine tomorrow, Nadia. Hmm. Uh, what uh, what's uh, going on the Biz News TV on YouTube? <laughs> so our top video over the last twenty four hours is the summary of your interview with Action SA founder Herman Mashaba this week, subsequent to the landslide victory of HH in Zambia, in which Herman talks about the response that Action SA has been receiving, as well as the upcoming municipal elections, which he hopes the constitution will stand their ground and keep to the twenty seventh of October. And then two live streams have done very well. The one of your interview with Magnus yesterday on Brain Drain and Cape Independence. And the other interview with Jack Miller, the founder of the Cape Independence Party. That's doing very, very well. 
Jack Miller, the new hero for people in the Western Cape. Well, certainly uh, for the younger generation, 37 years old. What I found amazing about him, uh, Stuart, uh, Jack Miller, is that his father, as you hear in the interview, got things going, uh, wanting more federation-type policies in South Africa uh, in 1993. And now Jack, it's what well, his father's passed on, but Jack wants the same thing. And uh, the Cape used to be called the Cape Party, now it's the Cape Independence Party, getting a lot of traction. He reckons if they can get 45% of the vote in the uh, municipal elections, if they are held in October, which the Constitution said they should be, then he can force the DA to have a referendum and indeed for the Cape to secede. No, agreed. And it's nice also from a, from Jack Miller's point of view, you sort of have a purpose, you know, it's, and he's carrying his father's sort of, not legacy, but that sort of element through. And I think he is on point at the moment. I think there's a lot of frustration. And I, you know, we don't like to assume in what's going to happen in the future, but it's very interesting to see how that the municipal election municipal election plays out in October, hopefully in October, if we have it in October, Alex. Well, according to the Constitution, we have to have it. And I, I get what the guys are saying. Zambia can have yeah. an election in uh, in the middle of COVID. Then surely South Africa, with its greater sophistication and much bigger economy, should as well. Just uh, take us through the podcast, the big podcast at the moment. Uh, similar to .com, Alec, your interview with Magnus. Uh, Yesterday, uh, Top of the Pops, the FMB CEO in second, and then Jack Miller was in third on the radio side. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Okay, Najaswart, let's see what the uh, news headlines are today. As many as four out of five South Africans may have contracted the coronavirus, indicating that the country may be one of the world's hardest hit nations by the disease. This is according to Emil Stipp, the chief actuary at Discovery Health, who based his calculations on the country's case fatality rate and excess deaths, a measure of the number of fatalities compared with an historical average. They are thought to provide a more accurate picture of the impact of the pandemic than the official toll. The infection rate of between 70% and 80%, as estimated by STIP, is high by global standards. South Africa has the highest number of infections with over 2.6 million confirmed and deaths in Africa. It also has the most widespread, widespread testing and monitoring of cause of death. In a May 13th presentation to Satsa, a tourism body, STIP estimated that 62.1% of South Africans had contracted the virus, a number he's since revised. From Friday, all adults in South Africa will be eligible to register for a COVID-19 vaccination cabinet confirmed on Thursday. The government is fighting to boost the rate of vaccinations, which have remained low as the country battles the third wave of the pandemic. All those 18-year-olds and older can register for vaccinations from Friday. Five months after administering its first vaccines, SA is still far from meeting its targets of reaching 70% of the population, a threshold that experts say is necessary before the country can reach herd immunity and reduce the risk of further lockdowns. South Africans may be required to contribute up to 12% of their earnings to a new government-backed fund, according to a new proposal from the Department of Social Development. On Wednesday, the department gazetted its green paper on comprehensive social security and retirement reform, which proposes the creation of a new national security, national social security fund, a government-managed fund which will provide retirement, disability benefits, and unemployment benefits. All employers and employees will initially be obliged to contribute up to 12% of their earnings up to a certain ceiling, which is currently proposed as earnings of 276,000 Rand per year. This means that if you earn more than 276,000 Rand per year, you will pay a maximum of 12% a year, and that's around 33,100 Rand a month a year, sorry, or 2,760 Rand a month to the fund. Okay, crazy stuff. Just crazy, crazy stuff. Here we are, uh, one of the most heavily taxed, effectively heavily taxed nations in the world. If you uh, remember what Nimola had to say, Stuart, uh, and about 70% of our current earnings is going in taxes. And now we got another 12% on top of it. You got to hope that somebody somewhere is going to be kicking up a huge fuss. I, I did talk to Gerard, uh, Papenfuss about this. 
and he had some pretty choice things to say, as we'll hear later. But I think anybody, you earn, to, say, 25,000 rand a month, you've got to, you're going to have to give the government another 3,000 on top of the tax that you're already paying so that their bad policies, which have created unemployment, can be papered over by being, that money being used to pay for people who don't have jobs, basic income grants and things. Where does so, the ad madness end? I agree, Alec. It, it, it's, you pay tax, you like to see something for the tax, and all you hear about is theft of the tax. So I think that's the first point. I think on the Gazette as well, it was proposed by the Department of Social Development, and it, as it's a green paper, so it's still got a long way to go. But obviously you can see where it's coming from, these types of policies, and it's not great from a taxpayer's point of view. Justin Rowe Roberts has been watching the markets, Justin. Uh, I presumably the markets didn't take fright at this uh, latest craziness out of Pretoria. I don't specifically know if it was that, Alec, but the market was better off closed like it was yesterday because the JSC is sharply down around 2.6% to 66,000. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 14 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 72 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 71 cents to the euro. Highballs, just wait there, wait there. 15 rand 14 cents. Goodness me, we were at 13.50 just a a month or so ago. Exactly. So the dollar has firmed against all the currencies in the world, but specifically against us, um, yeah, up up to 15 rand 14 cents to the dollar. So big moves there in the currency markets. Gold is still flat at $1,785 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost you around 28,000 rand. Brent crude is low at $66.70 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back approximately 675,000 rand. In the financial news, Standard Bank expects its income to grow faster than costs, with earnings for the year set to soar by at least 20% as damage caused by the onset of the pandemic eases. The Johannesburg-based firm saw profit after taxes and other adjustments grow threefold to 11.4 billion rand in the six months ending in June, as earnings in its home market rebounded off a low base in the same period last year. Africa's biggest lender said credit impairment charges declined 49% to 5.8 billion rand and that it's declaring an interim dividend of 360 cents per share, representing a 50% payout ratio. One of the few survivors from the 2010 construction boom, Wilson Bailey Homes, has returned to profitability with underlying earnings ballooning in the second half of the financial year. The onset of the coronavirus pandemic was a major headwind for the industry, with construction and related services being suspended for weeks in a number of jurisdictions in which WBHO operates. South Africa, Australia and the UK being the areas in which the company operates. WBHO's pipeline is a concern, however, with Australia and the UK seeing around a 50% decrease in its order book from the prior period. The South African order book has increased slightly, which could be a signpost that the government infrastructure plan is kicking into gear. Well, let's hope so. We do know that on the roads side, Wilson Bailey is doing okay, although Robex is better. We'll be talking about all of that later with Pit Fulion. This market report was made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, I'm really happy to be talking to Pit Fulion on a day when there is just so much news going on, Pit. Uh, we've had uh, financial res- or results coming out, Standard Bank, Wilson Bailey, yeah. Goldfield. Uh, on a day like this, what do you do uh, when there are so many financial results available? Yeah. Uh, do, do you just spend the whole day reading through numbers or, or uh, how does your team uh, adopt on something like this? So, so the, the analyst on any specific stock will probably read through the, give, give the results a glance. But, you know, I, I think it's, I don't think one needs to react to the results immediately. Um, remember, these results uh, are speaking about what happened, in, in specifically when we refer to Standard Bank, what happened from December or January to June. You know, it's rear view mirror stuff. It doesn't tell you what's going to happen in the future. Uh, and I think when you buy a share, you are buying the present value of future cash flows, not the cash flows that have already happened. Um, so when results come out, I, you know, the price might react, but I don't think it changes, you know, the fundamental valuation of the business uh, per se. So it's not something I try to react to at all, ever. Um, you know, I, I'll get around to reading the results properly in two or three or four weeks' time, maybe even. You know, it's... Uh, because it's, I'm reading history. I'm not reading about the future. But what, what happens if there's something in the results? Uh, do you at least skim them to make sure there's, 
it's not a fundamental change in the business operations. Yeah, so so, so when we look at them, if there's anything surprising, uh, you know, if earnings are down or up by a lot more than you expected, and, and normally companies flag what's going to happen to the earnings in any case. Um, so if there's any surprise like that, one would pick up on it. But uh, those are few and far between. So if we just look at them very briefly, Wilson Bailey is in our business portfolio. Uh, it yes. is a company you know pretty well. Uh, we like mm-hmm. it because we think it's great value there. Had the uh, Australians allowed Wilson Bailey to sell its uh, Aussie operation to the Chinese, yeah, uh, you'd yeah, probably be a yeah. multiple of the share price at the moment. What did you yeah. take out of those numbers today? Well, it, it seems like they started to get the Australian business back on track. Uh, I think for me, the big thing about Wilson Bailey was always the construction firm engineering construction firm with the strongest culture in terms of how they went about bidding for contracts, evaluating contracts, and managing the risks associated with contracts. So always do, they always used to do that very well, whereas a lot of the other construction firms used to, um, used to probably overbid and um, undermanage the risk. Uh, Wilson Bailey never did that. They also had a very good reputation in terms of the quality of the, they built, so they had a strong culture. Um, I think when they diversified into Australia and the UK, they lost a little bit of that. And I think we can see what happened in Australia. They, uh, I think that road contract in Melbourne, they lost a lot of money on that. I, th- I think that's the one. Um, so they're still busy working through that. So I think they've lost a little bit of the edge. Uh, and uh, what, when we're looking for them is to start regaining that cultural edge again, which I think is possible. Um, uh, and right now, if you look at the share price, it's not expensive at all. Um, but uh, one could only really justify higher valuation multiples on it if it regains its cultural edge, if I can put it that way. Mm. It is the blue chip of construction, uh, although Rabex has, done, yeah. has, has yeah. done quite a good job on the roads, hasn't it? It's, it's almost, it almost seems to be they nudging have. them, them out of Wilson Bailey out of the top spot there. Yes, they have, because I think that's the one area in construction roads where our government has continued to spend, um, where other areas have, fallen, has, have completely fallen by the wayside. So I think it's been very tough in other construction sectors. Roads, uh, which Rabex specialises in, has been a better sector to be in. Pete, uh, Standard Bank, uh, in, in a, mm. a bygone era, you used to focus on financials. I'm sure you still keep yeah. uh, pay yeah. close attention oh, to yes. it. Yeah, I think the health of any country's financial sector is indicative of the health of the country's economy, uh, of the wider economy. So I think it's always a good, when one looks at any country, it's always a good thing to look at their, how the financial shares are doing, specifically the bank shares, of which Standard Bank is one. And again, uh, you know, they're recovering uh, from all the, the provisions they had to make during COVID. Uh, so the earnings look very good right now. But I think the fundamental thing um with Standard Bank and basically with any bank share in South Africa is the lifeblood of banks is credit extension, lending money to businesses and people. Um, and that's not happening at the moment. I think uh, private sector credit extension in South Africa is growing anywhere between 3 and 5%, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and as long as that is muted, um, the outlook for earnings from uh, Standard Bank specifically and banks generally will still be muted uh, and current valuations probably won't change very much. So although they look like good value, and they, uh, uh, one would need to see credit extension grow much more rapidly for one to become uh, more bullish on, on the sector generally. I, I should have picked up with you earlier when we were talking construction, your uh, incredible pick of Avenge. Uh, you mm. were quite excited about it at I think one or two cents. It's now sitting at six cents. So it just shows you can get these penny stocks and if they move in the right direction, wow. Yeah. Uh, how do you, how, how are you viewing it now? And, and maybe maybe go back a little yeah. and explain your, your bundle yeah. of twigs analogy. Yeah, so, so Avenger is one of those. I've held it now for I think almost three years. I started buying it at uh, originally three years ago at about two cents. Um, and one could look at their balance sheet at that time um, and it had a certain net asset. I forget what the number was, but it was way in excess in excess of two cents a share. But it was completely out of favor because they had a very stretched balance sheet, lots of debt, lots of underperforming assets. Um, new management came in and said, well, we're going to clean up this balance sheet, uh, which they did. They sold a lot of assets. They raised a lot of new equity. This year, they've done two rights issues at one and a half cents 
each. Uh, and, you know, you, uh, we followed both rights issues, put more money in at, the, at that price, one and a half cents a share. Uh, because the balance sheet, although it was being diluted, it was the net asset value was so high per share on a per share basis that despite the massive dilution of a one and a half cents rights issue, the NAV per share is still sitting around, I think, 10 cents, um, with a share trading at six cents. And they came out with an um, earnings update um, a few days ago, which says they're going to earn around two cents a share uh, this year. So, you know, it, it looks like things are going in the right direction here. Um, so at six cents, I don't know. Um, it, it looks, it still looks like good value. At two cents, two years ago, it was a very risky proposition, which is why, you know, you know, put all your money into Avenge. But in a portfolio context, you could put a little bit of your money into it, along with a whole bunch of other shares, and um, you know, then you have that bundle of twigs as we speak about. Uh, and this twig has grown to a nice little branch. What what happened to Avenge in a in a nutshell? Uh, because as you say, if it, if it was if it was two cents uh, high risk uh, three years ago, and now it's making two yeah. cents a year, so you're getting your money yeah. back yeah. for every share you bought in a year in twelve months, which is an incredible yeah. return. Right. What yeah. went on there? Yeah. Um, so historically, what happened is, uh, as we spoke about the culture of Wilson Bailey of uh, you know managing risk properly in contracts, Avenge let the the risk management let them down, and they overbid for contracts. And they ended up having to pay massive penalties uh, on these contracts, so they started making huge losses. But also, when the going was good, remember in the years 2008 to 2012, 13, construction in South Africa was booming on the back of the World Cup and all those sort of things. They overextended themselves, took on a lot of debt um, to fund the projects they were involved to, and then these projects went sour and they sat with losses plus lots of debt which uh, is, is a killer. Um, and that, so that's where they ended up three, four years ago. And then New Measure came and started cleaning up the balance sheet. And, and right now, um, they own three businesses. The one is also an Australian construction company, which is okay. It's doing okay. The South African uh, construction business has been sold. They still own some engineering business in South Africa. And they also own a Trident, steel trading company. And I think the big change there is the steel price has gone up a lot and uh, Isco is starting to deliver steel again and that part of the business is doing a lot better. Um, and the market put zero value on that a while ago and, and is now starting to put a value on that part of the business. So underlying businesses are doing better. The balance sheet has been restructured. Uh, debt's been reduced. Equity's been increased. And I think the business is on a sound footing. And if construction activity picks up, you know, you could see it doing very, very well over the next few years. Uh, you're thumping the desk there a little bit. Uh, we, we're picking up the, the, the excitement yeah. <laughs> when you talk about average. Yeah. But, but there's lots of excitement at Discovery today. Uh, our colleague Justin Rowe Roberts picked mm-hmm. up that Kathy Wood from the ARC Funds has bought more than 600 million rands worth of Discovery South Africa shares. Is this a good or a bad thing, given that uh, some people think she's a genius yeah. and others not so uh, so enticed? I, you know, I, I think she has a very different investment style, investment process, investment philosophy than many other people. So, you know, as I've said many times, I don't think there's one way of investing that is the right way and everything else is wrong. There are different people who do it in different philosophies, different processes, and there's no right or wrong way. Um, she does it very differently to what I would do that. Um, so, but I can't criticize her for that because that's her philosophy and her process. I think uh, it's very interesting that we now have in common the fact that we both own Discovery, and I think that's probably the only shit we have in common. <laughs> um, Tesla, no? So, uh, no, no Tesla. Not on your um, side? <laughs> not, not on my side. I think she owns it. The other interesting thing you can say about, uh, about Cathy Wood and Ark is they've been selling their Chinese exposure quite aggressively over the past month or two, uh, okay. and in my opinion, probably correctly so. So that's just as an aside. Um, Are you still in your Tencent? Remember you said you bought your Tencent shares. I bought bought a very small position of Tencent. Mm. Um, You're uh, selling it? Thankfully, it's small. No, no, I'm keeping it. No, I'm keeping it. You're not not worried about all the reports we're getting out of there that, uh, you know, uh, uh, President Xi is now switching China back to the old ways. He's going to be 
uh, encouraging the uh, ten cents and others to be really redistributing their profits to the no, public. I, I was worried. I, I was worried about those things when the share price is double what it is now. It, it's down a lot. I think it's discounting a lot of those things. Yeah. I think there's still massive risk. Again, it's I think ten cent. Uh, owning it uh, via a VIE, variable interest entity. I think Tencent is one of the best companies in the world, but it's probably one of the riskiest investments in the world. Uh, so I think a small position as another twig in a portfolio makes sense. Would I have 3 or 4 or 5% of my portfolio in Tencent? No, definitely not. I think that's way too big for such a risky risky uh, investment. So extrapolate that to NASPERS and to, uh, to, to process the, those twins, which are so widely held in South Africa. Yeah, I, I must say I'm very worried about the very complicated machinations of, of management to try and, well, I don't know what they're trying to do, um, because whatever it is, they're not achieving it. Because if it is to narrow the discount to NAV, that's not happening. Um, it's causing a lot of, Transactional costs for shareholders, it's, incur, it's exposing them to tax risk. Um, so whatever they're doing there, I, I'm very uncomfortable with it. I don't understand it, and I'm uncomfortable with it. Um, it, it if pass gets much cheaper, it might create an opportunity. But again, a small position uh, it would be the only sensible thing to do because here you have – management trying to do something strange, which I don't understand, on top of owning a variable interest entity, which has extensional risks. So, again, as a twig in a portfolio, yes, it possibly might make sense, start making sense now. But, again, a, a big position like 3 or 4 or 5%, I, I think it's just way too big. At Bright Rock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's thought leadership feature made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs mesh life insurance that changes as your life changes. Gerard Poppenfuss is with me in studio. Good to see you again, Gerard. Niasa, let's just maybe introduce you first. What is Niasa? National... Employers Association of South Africa. Hello, Alec. Good to see you, man. <laughs> uh, and and you represent whom? Business. Business. Uh, um, employers um, of all sizes, in all industries, in all industries and all sizes. And, and I think we're a good uh, mirror of the uh, of the economy. There are a few guys, big guys, big guys, members of NIASA, and then it uh, goes down to the the uh, uh, medium sized businesses. Now, medium size is not is not small. Uh, the, the, the heart of the economy lies in medium sized business, of course, and it lies in small business, even t- to micro uh, uh, businesses. So, how many how many people do your uh, your members employ? Maybe just to give us a feel of, of who I'd, you speak. I'd to. say about somewhere between three and four hundred thousand. Okay, that's big number, three yeah. to four hundred thousand. Yeah. And how are they feeling after the month of shame in July? To some extent, uh, July was a watershed moment, which to some extent uh, will have positive results. You know, um, people, positive Seriously? in the sense that uh, that that uh, people will s- realize now there are certain things which we didn't take serious, which we'll have to take serious, and in that sense, uh, that. Is positive. Of course, it was extremely negative, but I think the, the 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 positive side of this is that people will start mobilizing, and I say that uh, not in a a, a uh, anti-state sense, but it's a personal security sense and a community sense. People will have to do something, and I mean, from the moment that happened, you know, when you're in a rural area, you realize there's a town with three policemen. You cannot rely on them. Not when you got uh, thousands of people coming at you. We saw that, for instance, with Donovan Carter, who we spoke to, who was in Moy River, yeah. uh, right in the middle of all the issues. And they, he and 12 farmers had to stand down or face down a mob of probably hundreds of people. Yeah. But, but more specifically, your members, the businesses. And I'll tell you where I'm going with this. In Peter Maritzburg, when much of the business center was trashed, the – Head of the Maritzburg Chamber of Commerce 
uh, Melanie Vaness, said to me that around half her members were likely to just take the Sassaria money and not reinvest. They, they're out of there. They really don't want to go through that again. What about your membership and particularly uh, those in KwaZulu-Natal and parts of Gauteng who were directly uh, affected by the riots? I kind of say that uh, in our case, it's half our members. I, I think they will be, but it's not half. I get a weekly schedule. An organization on our side have resignations. We also have resignations, guys, says I no, no longer want to be a member of NIASA. The most members we lose are small businesses closing down. They cannot make it. I mean, we lost pretty much quite a number of businesses through COVID. And we know, we follow each and every guy that says, I don't want to pay NIASA anymore, gets a call to find out what is the situation. And I I don't have that same uh, experience. Um, It didn't have that big impact on our members, and 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 um, no, you'd expect and, that because and, 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 Peter Maritzburg we're talking about a particular town uh, yeah, which yeah. was in the middle of, of yeah, the epicenter. Yeah, yeah, uh, um, that's not our experience. We would have known um, if if businesses closed down, and and I mean our, uh, uh, um, I mean the moment this how uh, it happens, the next day, Niasa's involved. Our labour lawyers is on the premises. They need to make plans if business doesn't operate anymore there's no income what 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 doing what 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 are you doing with your employees we involved immediately and we know we will uh, if we had a number of business saying we're closing down i would have known it if there's if if there were a huge number of them i would have known that it's not my experience i i think people are very resilient my my story is they will say no we'll continue they just said we'll we'll fight on. I think also it's a type of business. A, a, a medium-sized enterprise is a is a different type of person. Small and uh, small and medium. You know, a small businessman. Uh, let's say small is ten employees. You've got nowhere to go. <laughs> you can just pack up and go overseas or wherever. You you can't. You've got to go back and make a living again. Rebuild. And start afresh. I mean, I went to KZN. I actually visited these people. I was in, we're in the, sh- I was in their shops. I saw firsthand very discouraged people, but none said, I'm out of us. All of them said, we'll do it again. With what? What resources? The problem is, sorry, we don't know how long it will take. That, that we also know. But, you know, but we do know at least they're going to pay because they said the treasury will they, support they, they them. They will and, pay, and, mm-hmm. and I think you know, you know, the thing is, people find a way, and that is, that makes this organisation, which is a typical mirror image of what happens. They are a type of person, person that says, "I'm not going to be pushed around, and I will start again." Now they can. There's a green paper this morning yeah, where yeah. there's a proposal that there'd be twelve percent tax added on, or up to twelve percent, depending on how much you earn added on to your tax bill to fund a basic income grant. Yet another attack on the taxpayer. It's almost like government is under the impression that there's a never-ending money tree that taxpayers are producing for them. And, of course, the taxpayers are paid by the private sector, many of whom are your members. What do you and they do about this this never-ending seemingly plundering of their resources. I think that socialists think there is a never-ending tree of money somewhere. <laughs> I don't really think so. I think if you ask a, a socialist really where money comes from, they said, no, I'm not sure, but it must be, must be something that I don't know because <laughs> that's exactly – if you understand where money comes from, you won't do it. No, it's simple to say, do you really say they're not understanding? But there's understanding and then there's understanding. So, you know, we're talking about this thing you're mentioning, but I mean, there are many things that's really making it extremely hard for business to operate. I mean, this is this is this thing. There's well, that's, the, that's a proposal. That's and, a proposal. And but one, let's, one let's, would expect, anticipate that it would be fought tooth and nail. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, but, but, you but, can't but, keep but let's just look at the stuff that's already in place. How your the places where you do business is shrinking all the time. The, the conditions that's placed before you, unless you do this, you will not do business with us. And you know, this my guy, 
typical. You're talking about BEE and those kind uh, of Yeah, I'm referring to that. Um, a guy came to me and he says, you know, I fix this particular thing. That's my business. I fix this particular, I service these things for, for industry. I do that for 25,000 rand. That's what it costs. And I make good money. But that doesn't go to the client. It goes through a couple of hands. When it reach its destination, the price is 200,000. Whoa, that yeah. sounds Gupta-like. Well, that is exactly so. That hasn't stopped. This is how people are making their money. So and the tenderpreneurs or the, oh, the, the the different people in the chain are taking a slice. 200,000 rand. I mean, if you, if you drink a bottle of water at SAA, what does it cost and for what it is sold when SAA is still flying? What does it cost when you drink that bottle of water? What does it cost? That's, that's killing us. And that's just element, one element. Now, some guys will say, well, at least I get my money, but that, that isn't good. But the, the point is the conditions that is placed before you, before you can compete in this market, it is, it is extremely difficult. Employment equity, ridiculous. BE, ridiculous. What, what about those companies that are growing and then it get to – because up to 10 million rand turnover, you're still classified as fine for, for yeah. BE. Once you go over 10 million rand, then you – most companies or most white-driven companies, family businesses, uh, suddenly become almost untouchable by the corporate community because they go down to level 8 BE with, with little – a chance unless they give away their company or sell sell uh, the equity of getting to even where they were at less than 10 million rand turnover. What are people doing? What are your members doing when they get to that threshold? I'd say that most companies simply ignore this whole thing because it's impossible to comply. You know, it, the moment look at the the the, the, the the situation in government what is what is happening in government we cannot afford it in private sector to appoint a person unless it is the best person now you mustn't read into race into the statement because that it is not race orientated but when people sit in front of you you have to elect the best person and best person doesn't only mean qualification it means attitude style a history you know, you cannot invest in people and they just leave you and they're not really loyal and they don't share your company's values. Um, these are things that any businessman must look into and you must make your decision on that basis. When you start talking about quotas, you lose that. So when and, and, and quality, the quality of everything falls. So you cannot do it. Now, what must a company do that needs to exist into the future? Well, the one thing is you ignore it. You try to get around it, find a way, but you cannot actually do it. You point the best for the job, and the best of the job can be anyone. That can really be anyone. I've got first-hand experience of that, uh, that don't read race into this, because it is not race-bound, but it must be the best person. This thought leadership feature was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is John Dudlu, Chief Executive Officer of the Small Business Institute and former journalist himself. John, over half a million new business registrations were opened in 2020, a record number and an increase of more than 30% from the prior year. This seems counterintuitive given the economic destruction that has been caused as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. How would this be the case? Yeah, it does sound very counterintuitive because our research shows in a, a very different picture, a picture of devastation. But this is also very understandable that in a country where as many as a million jobs were lost during the first hard lockdown uh, of the pandemic uh, last year. Some people ended up uh, resorting to setting up their own businesses. What is, however, very surprising is the numbers uh, that are, re are recorded by the CIPC. In other words, this is the formal sector of, uh, economic operators. Uh, in other words, one of the two things uh, is a possibility here. The first one is, yes, of course, people are chasing livelihoods, uh, having lost their livelihoods because only about half a million uh, people did return to their jobs. The rest did not return to their jobs. 
So I'm not suggesting for a minute that all people uh, started their own businesses. Uh, but the second possibility, of course, is that um, people wanted two things. They wanted access to funding and they wanted access to opportunities. And we know the opportunities that arose last year uh, were around the COVID-related uh, PPE procurement, which, which would then suggest that perhaps we really did not create entrepreneurs. We might have created tenderpreneurs. But we need to drill down to these numbers to find out the key motivations uh, of these people. But it's not surprising that during uh, a very stressful uh, period that people take their life savings to set up something uh, to provide livelihoods to their families. Following on from that, John, we've seen this trend before after the 2008-2009 global financial crisis, where more new businesses were created during the economic meltdown. Do you see these new businesses created as a net positive or a net negative for the economy as a whole, given that many of these businesses, as you've said, may be open just out of complete desperation? Complete desperation as well as uh, opportunistic reasons to take advantage of the government procurement, for example. You need to be registered and there is no better way of accessing these opportunities than setting up a new enterprise which is not encumbered by debts employees. So what else would have happened in the economy? You look at the liquidation numbers, they have gone up. So you've had new people uh, coming in, but those may actually be the same people who have just uh, deregistered their businesses and set up new enterprises, laid off workers. Because in 2008, what you did see is you saw a bloodbath. Yes, there may be new businesses that were, would have been registered, but this did not uh, contribute to two things. They did not contribute to economic growth. They did not contribute to employment creation. So essentially all you had, quite a few shelf companies and very opportunistic uh, tenderpreneurs. Is this trend inherent to South Africa or is this a global trend happening all over the world in terms of new businesses being created? I can only testify to the South African story of um, uh, never give up, um, die trying, I haven't, we haven't had an opportunity of looking at other jurisdictions about what happens uh, there. But in South Africa, I think it testifies to our spirit. Uh, unfortunately, there's also a downside to this story. The downside to this story is the fact that we force people into entrepreneurship. We are not uh, having organic entrepreneurs. We are forcing people in, into entrepreneurship. And then, of course, the ecosystem is not very supportive of entrepreneurs. If you go to the DTIC, uh, the failure rates within the first two years is as high as 70%. It testifies to lack of support and to these accidental entrepreneurs as well. And John, more on the broader SME, small and medium-sized business space. They're the backbone of any country. They create jobs and empower economies, of which is of utmost importance to South Africa specifically now. Are these businesses receiving the necessary support from banks and financial institutions in order to keep going and stay afloat? No, sadly no. It's not the case. So the National Development Plan says the following. It says that as many as 90% of new jobs must come from the uh, small business segment of the economy by 2030. Where are we now? According to our research um, of 2018, the backbone of the economy, yes, is SMEs in South Africa, 224,000 of them, of those that were registered at the time with the CIPC Revenue Service and the UIF. However, uh, how much employment were they creating at the time? 3.9 million jobs. Now, that's 28% at the time of formerly employed people. It makes us an outlier economy because successful and progressive economies tend to have 60 to 70% of those jobs coming from the SME segment of the economy. You ask, are they well supported? Again, we go back to the research that we released last year. The first study was around the impact of COVID on SMEs uh, in South Africa. It found that no, uh, SMEs were, brut were brutally smacked uh, by COVID and they were, they were poorly supported uh, both by the private sector as well as the public sector. The case in point, of course, is the access to the relief measures. It was incredibly difficult to access those relief measures. You needed uh, about 
more, at least five documents. Now, that's a luxury for an SME uh, owner. Another research that we did uh, a few years ago also found that SME owners are spending as many as nine working days, uh, typically a month, just on compliance, whether it's with regulations, bylaws. So I think the researchers uh, that we started a conversation on also testified to the fact that many SMEs just turned away from uh, these relief measures just because they couldn't comply with the requirements. And John, these newly registered businesses will form part of the formal economy. However, hundreds of thousands of people, as you've said, have lost their jobs during this pandemic. How many of these people will fall back into the informal sector as a way to survive economic hardship? I think quite a lot of them. We already see them. The the, the most disappointing uh, part, of course, is that uh, many years into uh, the new dispensation post-apartheid, we continue to have very unreliable figures about the exact size of the informal sector economy. Because those people just wake up one day and set up a, uh, a store uh, selling sweets, uh, selling vegetables. Uh, they don't have to go through bylaws to register. And every day they have daily struggles of having to duck and dive uh, the municipal uh, officers who are trying to chase them for all sorts of uh, reasons, mostly compliance-related uh, uh, ones. So quite a lot would have gone there. And then, of course, I think, uh, Justin, you have to also look at uh, the number of the COVID uh, grant earners, the number of people who are earning that uh, 350 uh, grant. That also tells you it basically accounts for the people who have uh, been lost from the informal, uh, from the formal uh, employment. Uh, they've gone there because they don't have any other form of grant. After six months, your UIF um, benefits uh, run out, and then all you're left with is that grant. Lastly, John, the widespread looting and vandalization that took parts of Gauteng and KZN hostage. What effect has that had on the SME space in those areas? Will many of those businesses ever manage to recover? Um, I think a bulk of them will recover. So let me explain what I mean by that. The bulk of them are the ones who are operating inside the malls. So typically in the mall situation, what you find is you find the anchor tenants be they the big retailers, um, uh, and then next to them you have uh, very small owners, independently owned uh, stores, whether it's cell phone uh, companies uh, that are not owned by the head office, they are owned by individuals. Those are likely to recover quickly because most of what they would have uh, lost is uh, stock. Stock and a little bit of repairs uh, and they will be back on their feet. And they have uh, proper books, which means that they are uh, likely to access the help that's being laid out by both banks as well as uh, the, 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 the government. Then outside, you have your informal sector traders. Now, those are going to take time because not only is their infrastructure uh, destroyed, but their stock is destroyed they lack documentation to access any of the help that has been uh, given out. But Justin, I must also add that government has been very creative, responsive, and I sat in a meeting with the National Treasurer last week where their posture is vastly different from the posture we had uh, last year, where it was compliance, compliance, compliance. I think they are willing to think out of their box uh, right now. So that should contribute to quite a bit coming back onto quicker. But the amounts have to be quite high beyond the 3,000 rand amount that government has been talking about. I'm Justin Roberts of BizNews and you've been listening to John Dudlu, Chief Executive Officer of the Small Business Institute. This interview is brought to you by First Rand. This is Lena von Solberg for BizNews. 
This year's Lions Rugby Tour to South Africa has raised concerns about referee calls and the extended time spent on TMO or third match official investigations. While other sports like cricket and tennis have benefited from technology like Hawkeye, the shape of a rugby ball has made the application of this kind of technology more difficult. But two UCT graduates believe they can change that. They have founded a company called Sportable in the UK, which uses portable scalable data collection to try and fill the ball tracking hole in rugby. One of the founders of Sportable, Dougal McDonald, told Business that they wanted to improve the flow of the game with their ball and tracking technology. The story starts about 34 years ago. One of my co-founders, Pete and I, were born two days apart in the same hospital there. We both grew up together. We went to school together in Cape Town, both went to UCT together. And then we came over to the UK to do our postgraduate degrees. I was at Oxford and Pete was at Cambridge. Pete is the smart one. He's the technical one. I, I you know, I'm, I'm more on the commercial side, but Pete's the really smart guy. He's got a, his PhD in nuclear engineering from Cambridge University, which then took him into a career in working in nuclear power for space missions. And where he went to work was at NASA. While at NASA during his downtime, he was watching an ice hockey game and he saw a massive body collision on the ice. So a huge contact between two of the guys, you know, and they fly along at really high speeds in that sport. And he thought, you know, would that kill me? Being a problem solver, he didn't stop there. He then started working out from first principles what the energy transfer is, what the size of the hit would have been. And once he did that, he thought, well, surely there are other fans who'd want to know this information. And he told me this idea and you know, light bulb went off in my head, you know, which was why was the defining feature of the game that I love rugby? Why was that missing from the fan engagement perspective? Why don't we know anything about contact? Uh, why don't we know anything about the forces in scrums or in tackles? Apart from being able to describe what's happening to fans, there's also a whole player welfare element to be able to protect the players, which is so important. So, you know, he told me this idea. I had the light bulb and I called him the next day and I said, could you do it? And he, of course, said yes. So I said, great, we're starting a business. But really, that was the tip of the iceberg in terms of where we are today. The idea has evolved so much, but that was the seed that was planted. And, and what we started to see once we started to explore the problem in more detail was that there's a thirst for data in sport. Everyone wants more information. The sports that are able to provide better information to their fans and their players, they're always going to perform at a higher level. And it's the sports like cricket and tennis where Hawkeye you know, is a ubiquitous technology. It can show you how good players are at bowling or batting. It's totally transformed the way that people engage with those sports. Formula One has been producing data from the cockpit or around, you know, thermal imaging of wheels, you know, for decades now. And we all know how big that is as a sport. So for us, it was about how can we create, use that philosophy around data collection, analysis, and providing great insights for fans but for the sports that don't have it. And the sports that don't have it happen to be some of the biggest in the world, contact sports, where you have really true fan engagement and dedication. Our focus as a company is creating tools that can allow sports to create a new set of assets, new monetization opportunities through data collection and analysis. Is the emphasis on the ball or on the players? It's on both. If we want to tell stories for a coach or for a fan, if you look at a game of rugby or, or any other contact sport, there are three pillars. There's the ball movement, which is crucial. The ball is the conductor of the orchestra. Everything that we're doing off the ball or around the ball is in relation to where the ball is or where it's going to go. And also how we manipulate the ball with our foot or with our hands defines how good we are at kicking or passing. And if you break down, so I'll use rugby as the example, but it's it's very simple when you look at American football or soccer, the highest paid players in rugby is always the number 10. And then it's a number nine. And then it shifts depending on what league you are between your, your second rowers and your 15. So those players are all in charge of either kicking the ball, throwing the ball well, or securing the ball well. So we need to understand how they work with it. And by tracking the ball, we can actually give you an objective measure on improvement or, or changes in improvement. So you want to be able to, to analyze the ball to be able to measure the ability of players in those key areas. 
that's ball movement. The second pillar of, of any contact sport is player movement. So we want to understand how players are working together as a team or how they're working against their opposition. So we track the players to, with very high accuracy. We put a device on their backs and that allows us to track them around the field and create unique insights around tactics and strategy. And then the final pillar is impact. You know, the thing that got us into this industry in the first place, being able to analyze the forces involved in tackles and in scrums and then turn that into insight around tackle ability or scrum ability. And for that, we use a, it's like a smart sensing fabric. It can pick up the, the pushing and the, the hitting forces across the shoulders and the upper torso of a player. So we take all the data from those three things, the sensor in the ball, the sensor on the player, and the wearable that they're wearing to measure impact. And then we put uh, the software that we use then makes that interesting, curates really interesting insights for fans. Sure. Okay, if you say wearable, is that a little vest that the players would have to wear? Exactly. It's it's like a very tight-fitting garment. You know, just like when you go to the gym, people are wearing those um, those second skins, very similar to that. So discreet and comfortable, which is so super important for the top players. How does yours differ from Hawkeye? Because Hawkeye needs a round ball. Where rugby, you know, the ball is so different. That's fundamentally it. So Hawkeye technology requires cameras. And the cameras, when you're looking at a round ball, it's the same shape from every perspective. Also, they are very organized sports, cricket and tennis, nicely spaced out. So the cameras don't ever get confused. But when we move into rugby, first of all, the ball is oval. So it changes shape depending on what perspective you're looking from. And it's highly chaotic. The body shapes of players getting hidden in rucks and in malls, uh, you know, it's about as chaotic a sport as you can get. So what you have to do is actually instrument the players. You have to put a chip in the ball and a chip on the player. If you look at the lines to that's yeah. just been passed and the controversy, how would you improve you know, what happened there and the time that was spent with the TMO analyzing the game? How would your technology improve that? So using the ball tracking technology, what we're able to do is we're able to identify forward passes as they happen. So there are a number of other things we can do, but the one that's, I think, one of the biggest issues in, in rugby today is, is identifying forward passes. So the technology will identify when the ball has traveled forward faster than the player carrying it, because that means it's been passed or thrown forward. And then what it will do is it will send an immediate alert. So less than half a second, the alert will be sent back either to the TMO or it could be sent to the, the referee himself, which means the referee can blow his whistle and call back play. And I think the crucial part of this is we're not trying to replace referees. We've kind of give them a tool to make a better, faster decision. Because at the end of the day, the fans are interested in two things. Integrity is critical. We want good decisions, but we can't have good decisions that take 10 minutes to review. Because the other side of the coin is that fans want a fast-flowing, enjoyable product. They want to watch a fun game that lasts 80 minutes, not 160 minutes. Is it light sensors? Is it pressure sensors? What exactly is in there? We use a, an RFID tracking system. So what that does is we're looking at how we measure the time. The ball has a little device in it. It sends a chirp, an electronic chirp. And that electronic chirp measures the time delay from a series of beacons around the field, which is effectively triangulating the position in time. And then within the ball, on the same thing, so that's how we track it in three dimensions. We also have chips that can measure the spin state of it, its orientation, so where it's facing on the field at any one time. And we have a pressure sensor. So one day when we are looking at whether the ball was grounded over the line, that pressure sensor will come in handy. Who are you working with already? Where is this used in practice already? We've had success in the Northern Hemisphere now. Notable that the companies I can talk with are like Leicester Rugby, for example, Saracens, you know, are a key partner of ours. And then at the league level where the technology really comes in, we worked most recently, actually had a fantastic launch in South Africa with the Varsity Cup, a very progressive forward thinking rugby tournament. So you could see some fantastic insights there around the ball tracking technology. We've also just completed uh, our first tournament with the Women's Six Nations. And so hopefully that will lead to a, a broader partnership with the Six Nations tournament. And I've seen you also have some agreements with ball manufacturers, Gilbert. Yes. So we have a great partnership with Gilbert Rugby and with their sister company, Steeden, that, that are the primary ball for rugby league. And the idea is we work together to create a, a new, exciting product 
for rugby teams and for fans. You know, the chip will go inside their ball and then the ball will be balanced and weighted. So it's, it's got the same aerodynamics of any other ball. Both of those companies are the biggest and best ball manufacturers of their class in our sports. So working with them, you know, you are guaranteed that what comes out of their factories and into the hands of players is going to be the best quality. So we're very lucky to work with them and we've got a, a great relationship with them. So can I ask you, who do you support? Who do I support? It's a no-brainer. So the Booker are my number one team. I mean, it's I'm shocked that I have to get asked that, but of course. <laughs> Sorry. And then it's the blue and whites and then it's province. This interview was brought to you by First Rand. For more stories of South African success, visit the Good Hope section at biznews.com. Well, thank you for being with us today and actually through the week. Remember that the Business Power Hour comes to you four days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday evenings. And then we take a break on Friday where we swap across to the fun Friday with Carrie's Corner. But until Monday from the team, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Business. News.